Hello, everyone, and welcome to Changing the Frame. We're your hosts. My name is Leo Torre, and I use he, him pronouns. My name is Indigo Corris, and my pronouns are she and her. We're a podcast that discusses trends and non-binary experiences in the film industries. Every episode will count with the appearance of a trans and or non-binary multimedia artist in the film industries to talk about their work. We're really excited to share these amazing talks and discussions with you all. In today's episode, we are joined by a lovely guest, Hogan Seidel, a moving image artist currently living and working in Seattle. They have taught experimental film, photography, interactive media, and art history as affiliated faculty at Emerson College and the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. They're a co-editor of Analog Cookbook, a UNC Press biannual journal about analog film and art. This is Changing the Frame. So hello, Hogan. Thank you for joining us. We are going to get started by having you, having you tell us about yourself and your background. Thanks for having me. My name is Hogan Seidel. Um, I use they, them pronouns. A little bit about my background. I grew up mostly in South Florida. I moved to Boston for college and grad school. And then I currently live on the West Coast of the United States in Seattle. But right now I am at a residency at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams, Massachusetts. So that's where you're um, hearing my audio from. (laughs) Um, And I guess who I am or what I do is um, I'm a moving image artist. mostly working in the traditions of sort of experimental film and avant-garde legacy. I also work a lot with photochemical abstractions and eco-processing. I've also used new media um, and digital sort of interventions and sort of hybrids between analog and uh, digital film, but mostly I use analog. I'm kind of an analog lover. I love the tactileness i love i love touching my medium i mean i can touch my computer screen i guess um but it's not the same as like hand processing 200 feet of film and holding it in your hands um or like using uh cyanotype paper and actually pressing negatives or flowers or things onto film and um really seeing the chemistry react to something um I love it so much. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I really want to get into like touching film as well. There's a filmmaker that I met in the Alchemy Film and Arts Moving Image Festival. And basically she gets like old film from eBay and she destroys it. And it sounds so cool to do. (laughs) So I'm going to do a workshop with her um, next month and it's going to be really cool. What's the artist's name? Autojector. I yeah, of course. I I I know Autojector. I <laughs> I um I work for Analog Cookbook, and uh, we've published her many times. Big fan. Shout out. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna see Robin at Camp Trends next month, and that's where um she's doing the workshop. So really cool what made you pursue moving image art and what roadblocks did you face when you you were starting out 
So I went to film school. I didn't really know much about experimental film, moving image arts, nonlinear filmmaking, stuff that is, you know, really upheld sort of at like festivals like Alchemy, which I love. So shout out to Alchemy. When I went to undergrad, I went to a very traditional film school and I was sort of surrounded by immense amounts of wealth. (laughs) And, And a lot of the value these professors were putting into filmmaking was based off of precision, right? Which had a lot to do with the types of tools you could have. It had to do with the types of lights, the types of cameras, the types of lenses that were available to you. And I sort of felt out of place. And I was like, oh, I I don't have money. I don't know what to do. And I took a 16 millimeter filmmaking class. And I had this professor, uh, John John Vito, who one just bought me a bunch of things, saw that like I did not have enough money. And was like, here's a couple rolls of film. I have extra and really introduced me to the legacy of experimental film, um, Peggy Awesh, like all these tactile filmmakers who are painting on film, scratching on film. Um, and I sort of fell in love with this practice because with so little, I could create so much. Um, with a roll of 100 feet of film, you know, at the time it was like $17. Kodak has upped their prices a lot. So that's not the case anymore. But with $17, I can make an in-camera edit and make something quite beautiful. Um, and although there's a lot of precision in 16, there is this sort of, I don't know, there's just freedom from that world. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. There's this freedom. Like I can, I can disrupt film. I can... I can agitate it, I can scratch it, I can do all these things that aren't considered precise or pristine or what we consider classic or beautiful filmmaking in the sort of commercial realm. But you can, with so little, you can make so much. And that's really what drew me to Moving Image was for someone who didn't have a lot. And even when I teach, you know, if you're a queer trans teacher, after like two semesters, like you realize all the queer and trans students um, flock to your class. <laughs> and, and I realize they, they also have this issue of means, right? It's a classic uh, issue in the United States. You know, these students come from less, they have less support from their families, often, um, you know, estranged from their families without support. And they often drawn to the moving image, one, because it's a radical practice that often centers itself around frameworks of like um, queer theory, radical practice, um, um, liberation, and then also the what they can do with so little. I mean, I was seeing all the stuff like Autojector was doing, just like um, allowing yeast and mold to sort of eat film. And, you know, these things you can do with uh, a mason jar, a roll of film you get on eBay, and you know a pack of yeast. <laughs> like, like you can create something so incredible and beautiful and meaningful with so little. And that was such a long-winded answer for why I love moving image, but that 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 is at the heart of it for me. Well, I think that's brilliant. Um, a brilliant answer. Uh, it ties a bit nicely to what I was going to ask next because. 
you have mentioned that you use several different filming materials and edition styles, and you talk about the accessibility for them um, in, in how they interact with your practice and how you prefer tactile mediums. Um, so something that really caught my attention from all the work I've seen of yours is the, the variety, because you use many different types of mediums. Um, so I wanted to ask you how you go about choosing the specific medium for each project and how you pair different forms of editing with different ideas. Oftentimes I come at a piece from the perspective of process first. I'm sort of interested in an idea or concept or I'll read about something that I'm really interested in making work about. And then from there, before I even start thinking of the images, structure, the sound, I kind of think, okay, what's the medium? And what is sort of the process and how does the re process reflect the sort of ideas? And oftentimes I do a couple of tests and before I even, you know, start the piece. And like, this is a piece I'm working on and it looks a little weird, but it's actually negative um, 16 that I've laid onto sanotype paper and reprinted. And then I'm going to re-scan it um, and reanimate it. So this specific piece I'm looking at, especially in the wake in the United States about, um, you know, these drag bands that really are targeted towards um, trans people, these access to gender affirming healthcare for young people that is very targeted at trans people, and this sort of philosophy amongst the religious nationalist right in the United States that is very much thinking that queer and transgender people are grooming children. Like they're invading our schools. We have to get their books out of here. We got to Like, I mean, I've studied the transition from the Weimar Republic to fascism. I mean, early, you know, early Weimar Republic was this like huge, beautiful studies of trans healthcare and, you know, trans literature and all these things right before fascism. And like, this is kind of like these books being banned. It's all sort of like, it's like parallels right now. And these banning of, um, uh, you know, all things queer. And it's so funny because growing up in a very right-wing religious household, I find that um, the tactics are grooming. These ideas that convince children that they are going to hell unless they act these sort of ways, the sort of bombardment of like biblical media is very much like a grooming behavior. And so I'm taking all this found footage of these um, 16 millimeters. There's just so much media that came out of like biblical films, um, sort of propaganda and advertisements for these like large um, religious sort of nationalist um, churches that showed children like in states of fits and like, like crying and like breaking down like for the Lord as like an act of religious passage. I'm using all these materials and I'm re-photographing them onto cyanotypes. So I'm like creating these sort of baptism, both in the film of like washing. And then I lay cyanotype onto paper and I do wet cyanotype so I don't let it dry. So kind of this underdeveloped paper that I then press the film onto and then expose it to sun and then wash it. So I'm interested in these like processes that replicate some of the images, like these baptism images. 
and then I'm re-photographing it onto a sienna type. And right now I'm holding up some of the tests I did. That's incredible. Yeah, so and I'm not sure how the piece is going about just yet. I'm just doing tests. I'm sort of interested in the process and collecting these 16 films, re-photographing some digital to 16, and I'm sort of collecting media. And which is sort of the same thing with I did with gender reveal party or genital reveal party, sorry, <laughs> not gender reveal party. Um, I made a film called General Reveal Party where I was just for so long fascinated by the spectacle and its relationship to other forms of oppression. Lots of gun violence, explosives that often go around these sort of gender reveal parties. And gosh, if anyone's listening to this and doesn't know what that is, I'm so happy for you. Um, and to explain it <laughs> to anyone who may not know what it is, people who believe in sex binary um, have a party where they cut into cakes or they set off explosives. And blue means your child has outward genitals and uh, pink means your child has inward uh, genitals. And they're really excited about telling everyone about their child's genitals. And I found this spectacle so disturbing on so many levels. Um, but especially in the United States, it's so connected to, you know, violence. Like so many of these are about explosives. Um, so many of them have guns involved with it. And then there also has been the stream of fires that have broken out. And um, thinking about the relation to sort of climate disaster and gender essentialism and finding all these ties from this like one act to all these other forms of like disaster and oppression was so fascinating to me. But in that same process where I'm just collecting materials, like with this piece, I often collect, re-photograph, process, and then kind of think about how I'm organizing it afterwards. And for that one, I decided to re-photograph it as a 3D film. So I decided to make the spectacle, like the most ridiculous spectacle, like, why are you watching a 3D 16-millimeter film print? Like, it's just nonsensical. It just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I just separated layers. There's, no, there's like, no way great technique to it. it. It is almost, it almost doesn't make any sense that you're wearing your 3D glasses at the time. But it is really funny to look at a full audience watching my film in 3D glasses for, like, no reason at all. So it's, it becomes, like, a performance in that way, too. As a moving image artist, like, where do you go to find sound and music that matches the footage that you have and, like, the work that you're making? Yeah, because, for example, I was thinking of the film Pride and, like, you got Sylvia Rivera's speech into that. And, like, how was the process of doing that, deciding what parts of it would you put into the film? Um, but also, like in other films, like sound is very important. So, yeah, how do you go about that? Oh, pride! Pride is actually pretty different than most of the ways I go about sound. Um, but pride was such an interesting film to make, and it kind of I started making it and showing it in spaces. Often not queer spaces. I was in grad school at the time, which is always like a 
fun, terrible experience. Um, <laughs> people like asking you to like kind of exploit your queerness and your work or like exploit yourself. But in this case, I was making this film and I didn't have the audio yet. So I was, I, I, it was all in camera. So 16 millimeter, I was like rewinding the camera. I was at Pride 2018 and I was kind of like, and it was before like a lot of people were sort of really addressing um, rainbow capitalism. <laughs> It was at a time when I when I would talk about capitalism, people would be like, oh, someone took their first um, Marxist class. And I'm like, no, like, <laughs> this is terrible. And I would show it to people and be like, oh, you should be so happy that companies support queer people. And I'm like, that's not what's happening here. And I and 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 in, in the wake of Target taking down, if you haven't heard, um, U.S. Target brand had a bunch of pride collection. They usually have a very um, subtle pride collection over the years. Like they'll have like a rainbow shirt. They'll have like, you know, just things that exist normally in everyday life and exist within clothing companies. Not anything spectacular, but this year they were very like adamant about it. And under any sort of pressure from anybody, um, they will take it away. Once it becomes a liability, um, they no longer are an ally. And this is sort of what, this piece was trying to address is like, these companies are not allies. They take up space in radical communities and they take up space for um, actual people organizing for queer people, for trans healthcare, for trans housing. And they make it a spectacle of brands and banks and banks that often are you know, at the time, um, TD Bank was funding the Dakota Access Pipeline and polluting native land. And like, so these like ideas that they will use us, they will market to us until they no longer need us or become a liability. They are not an ally to us. And when I kept showing this, people were kind of reacting terribly to it. <laughs> and they were like, you should just be happy, Hogan. The mood has changed, which is great. The mood has changed in the U.S. and everyone is not down. But most people were kind of upset when I first showed this. And which seems sort of silly because I look at it and it seems so like not offensive of a film. All that leads up to the idea that I knew there was something missing from this piece. And in looking through the archives of sort of early queer protests, early marches, um, often surrounding New York City, you know, I found this piece by Sylvia. Rivera that was quite powerful, that is talking about the exclusion of trans people at Pride, which is talking about the mass incarceration of trans people, which is talking about the sexual assault trans people feel within mass incarceration, which is still a problem today. The exclusion of radical trans people, especially Black radical trans people in Pride, these organizations have been excluded from Pride, specifically in Boston, to organize, to to walk and and I looked at this and I said we're still having the same problems almost 30 years later and so to see that speech in comparison with contemporary day was really important to me looking at past and present as almost this sort of call to not necessarily a call to action but a call to realization of of this that that, that we're 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 still being affected in similar ways. And obviously, the trans liberation is also connected to mass incarceration in the US. Like these, these fights are all interconnected. 
And these are the things we need to be organizing around. These are the things we need to be talking about. These are, and there are organizations that are barred from walking because it, these spaces are being taken up by people who are giving these institutions money. And I put Pride TM because it is trademarked. I haven't been sued but, um, by Pride, but Pride, <laughs> Pride New York City, Pride Boston are all companies. And Mal Bloom, who's one of my favorite trans um, musicians, he wrote this really amazing piece about New York because he was living in New York at the time. And he was saying, oh, well, it's funny because they ask queer and trans artists to play for free. And then they invite Katy Perry and, you know, give her $50,000. So these these companies are also not supporting or redistributing wealth within the queer and trans community, right? So like the things that, you know, the disparities that affect us, you know, the fact that us trans and queer artists do not have money are, are, are very, um, you know, on the brink of being houseless, like, like, and you have this amazing institution that can redistribute wealth to these individuals and are not doing it and giving money to not queer people uh, to play at Pride. What is wrong with you all? This used to be <laughs> like this needs to be about organizing less and and about celebration. Like those things can coexist. So that's also an argument I get. Like, oh, we have to celebrate ourselves. It's like we can celebrate ourselves and also organize. And organizing is celebrating ourselves. I think personally. <laughs> and this and the sound came from needing um, the sort of the reflection of two historical moments right and 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 for sort of a realization that this fight is the same one and for other sound pieces i'm i I don't use a lot of archival usually unless um i'm taking directly from a piece of media that i'm reworking i love textural noise oftentimes if i make like direct animations i'll run it through a projector and like output the sound that the direct animation is making on the optical track tim wojcik made me a helped me make we made it together a contact mic and a hydrophone so hydrophone is just a a phone with it's like almost like a fishing line where i can like put it in water or like any sort of liquid materials and listen to the texture of water or I can put a contact mic against skin moving or a tree branch. And I'm really interested in these like textural sounds. And then often I reprocess them through sort of analog synthesizers. So I have like a teenage engineering, like OP1. Like I have, I have some like smaller things that I can like process them through um, scales or um, kind of take that textual music and make it into sort of music textural i can take the textural sound and make it into music and that's often what i do that's amazing i'm i'm really enjoying listening to like all the process that you go through so thank you i i really enjoyed listening about um your thought process behind making pride trademark and we're definitely going to talk about activism and filmmaking a little bit more later but for now i'm going to pick up what you said about putting the contact mics onto water and trees and run with it because I find that very fascinating. Um, and the next line of question was about Constantine, which is a film you made that came out this year, if I'm right. Um, yeah, um, so Constantine uses a layered and complex visual language to explore themes of queer love and queer ecology. And you filmed it on high contrast black and white film. 
16 millimeter um, and edit it in camera. Would you like to tell us more about this film and the themes of it and how you made it? So going back to this idea of when I was younger, a young artist, and really trying to do a lot with a very little. I made this during, I, I filmed this during 2021. And I didn't, I, and I, this is often a Hogan thing. And uh, my, my friend and collaborator, Gabby Sumney, always makes fun of me for this, because I'll just collect materials for a year. And then I'll just like pop out like four films and like, a matter of a month and it's 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 kind of a silly process because I, I I just will have stacks of things I've photographed and filmed and at the time I had lost a bunch of adjunct work it was 2021 and it was like another resurgence of COVID in the United States and there was not a lot of work for me and at a time where I was posting being like, hey, well, if anyone wants to buy anything from me or like wants any of my excess film stock, like I'm selling it. Like I was basically doing like a foreclosure sale of my life at the time just to survive as many artists were doing or everyone was doing just like finding ways to make money while, you know, there was no industry. There was no, there was no nothing. And it was so funny because it was right after, it was like right after I like showed at like Alchemy, which was like a really big deal for me because I really, I really love that festival. And so I was, I was doing all these really amazing things and I was showing at these places. I even talked at Alchemy. They asked me to like talk at their opening ceremony and all these really beautiful things are happening, but I had so little, I just had nothing at the time. I had like no means to make and print stock Hikon print stock um, is made by Kodak and you can get it from shout out to a couple places that sell this. They, they buy this really cheap film stock. They downspool it because it comes in like 1200 foot rolls. Um, so places like Mononoa Ware um, in Brooklyn, which is an artist run film lab and like collective and then liaison of independent filmmakers in Toronto um, lift. And I bought a couple rolls of film for like $15 and I was like, what do I do? I was sort of uh, sort of studying these ideas, and it's something I'm actually working on right now, these ideas of queer ecology, or sort of like an epistemological framework, or like what we know and how we know it, and sort of thinking about how people use science, or like create categorizations in science um, that are politicized and used to sort of uh, negatively impact and, and are used politically to basically criminalize trans people. Um, these ideas that there are only binaries, which doesn't really exist in nature. I'm actually, I'm making a film with my collaborator. I told you about Gabby Sumney, who's an incredible artist. And it's, a, and it's an ode to the ginkgo tree. And ginkgo trees actually can change sex and oftentimes are between sexes and like these ideas of binaries in nature don't actually exist. So I had very little and I was kind of interested in a body, a queer body, trans body, lovers returning to nature and natural spaces. And that is sort of a radical act. And like in a time when I was like locked away, I could not see friends. Uh, I only had my partner, my husband, uh, whose name is Constantine, um, the title of the film. <laughs> Shout out, uh, to my husband. And in this process, I was interested in one, returning to nature using macro lenses to re photograph these textures. 
Um, and then also in this idea of destroying binaries and hierarchies, I was interested in creating this sort of collage where, you know, in filmmaking, we're often taught about visual hierarchies, like, oh, well, you frame it this way because you're sending the viewer's eye in this direction, right? You're, you're framing in certain ways because you're always creating visual hierarchies and sort of um, changes of attention between different parts of the frame. And that can be done with color, that can be done with lighting, that can be done with framing. And I was sort of interested in like creating um, a visual hierarchy, uh, a non-visual hierarchy, just like an overwhelming of a collage that your attention every time you watch it can be sort of focused on something else. There isn't always like a piece you're like, oh, well, this is the focus of the film in this frame, sort of layering and triple exposing. And for those who may not understand or have not done analog or 60 millimeter filmmaking, I have this full X and I'm holding up my camera right now. And I have a roll of film, it's 100 feet, and I can shoot it, um, underexpose it, and then I can rewind it in camera and then rephotograph on it again. And then rewind it again and rephotograph it again. That is sort of uh, the process with making this film. Um, I was just gonna say, and now we can talk about other films as well, because there's quite a few that we're gonna talk about. The next one we were gonna ask about was Haricots and Torn Silk that you made a couple of years ago, which is also shot in 16 millimeter black and white film and layers elements of animation, analog and digital as well. Um, in this film, you have exchanged between your body, the natural world, and the mythology of the trans body. Where did the idea for Heracles and Torn Silk come from? And why did you choose this particular mediums to, to make this film? I was at, it's funny, I was at um, a sort of camp. I don't know how to describe it. It's like kind of an artist residency, but it's mostly a camp. And I was really young and I, I was not really young. I was like 25. And I, this filmmaker invited a bunch of filmmakers to their island off the coast of Seattle. Um, funny enough that I'm in Seattle now, but I was in Boston at the time. Um, and we actually made black and white film. We synthesized silver halide. We suspended it in gelatin. And then we painted it onto film in darkness and we let it dry in darkness. And I filmed a bunch there. And this is material I made in like 2016. Again, this thing where I just keep collecting materials and make something kind of really meaningful at the moment, but not sure exactly what it is or how it fits into a whole piece just yet. And that was sort of in my, more when I started to be more open about um, sort of like my queer and sort of trans identity at the time I was sort of exploring ideas of like self-love and body and nature and I was also reading a book by Ann Carson um, called The Autobiography of Red um, which is a retelling of the myth of Heracles as sort of a, a queer boy with wings and um, I was really uh, fascinated by these like queer retellings of mythology and how it really helped me think about my body as a myth, textural and, you know, with typographies and uh, rivers and valleys and, you know, like every 
and I was really interested. I was like bending my fingers in interesting ways and re-photographing it and like macro. I was like, it was kind of like a love poem to myself um, and like a myth story and like a creation myth almost of like my own body at this moment. And I was, and I was having so much fun. I was like, I was really enjoying my body for the first time, um, which is something that is hard, you know, um, even for like non you know, queer and trans people, um, but especially, <laughs> you know, and I was having, and I was like distorting my body and like, with like a camera in hand, like, like really weird, like, like it was, I probably looked so weird doing it in my tent outside this person's house, but I was learning to like fall in love with nature and my body. And it kind of is very similar to Constantine in the way that I was um, connecting with nature and, and skin and body and sort of calling out to something divine. Um, it felt very religious. And as someone who sort of left religion behind, I found sort of religious practice in um, art and filmmaking. Yeah, or at least the rituals of filmmaking as sort of religious practice. I think that is the moment where I was like, like th this is a piece of work when I rewatched it. And there was something even euphoric about like rewatching it um, so one side is the film, the black and white is just regular, the film, the 16 millimeter film that I rewound, a double exposure, nature, body, exploration. And then also I did a sort of side by side, I did sort of digital interventions. So relayering that in many different types of colors and allowing those colors to sort of bleed into each other. It, it was a moment of revisiting it now. So I wanted an intervention that existed in the present moment because I made it like three years, four years later. And it was me sort of revisiting, restructuring the footage. So we had this sort of original like exploration of body back younger Hogan. And then we had this sort of intervention of like, of the Hogan rewatching this, replaying this, rephotographing, layering it again, um, and sort of creating something new and beautiful out of what they created before. I made this film, and I and I kind of forced myself to make this film during COVID. Oh wait, I didn't release it until twenty twenty one. Oh yeah, so many years later, so almost five years. Sorry, I should get my dates right. Um, almost five years later. Fountain Street Gallery in Boston was looking for work at the time, and they sort of reached out um, to me because I was the head programmer of the Boston LGBTQ AI Plus Artists Alliance, or BLA, B-L-A-A, we just call it BLA. And I did a whole program uh, called Trans Experimental, and it kind of, and they wanted a new piece by me. So like, oh, well, we want a new piece by you working on anything. And I was like, I must have something. And I and I rediscovered this roll of film, just like in a canister, like labeled Orcas Island 2016. And I'm like, what is this? I remember this, and I like saw it, and it like I don't know. I just like my heart stopped. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a beautiful moment that I filmed with my body and nature. I have to I have to make this into something. I, I love that very much. I almost flipped the table in excitement when you mentioned Anne Carson's autobiography of Red, because I've read that book as well. And I, I'm also very much into the mythologies around bodies changing and queerness and all the retellings there are. And a little bit in theme with you finding this film from years ago and kind of doing a metamorphosis of it, I would like to recommend that you read Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith, if you haven't yet. 
it's a retelling of Ovid's Metamorphosis, but with the Scottish backdrop instead. It's very good. It's very short as well. But yeah, I it made me really happy that <laughs> you mentioned Anne Carson. Anne Carson. And it's something I really love is I read a lot of poetry. Poetry is really important to me because the way poets use structure and form, the way they really think about process and structure and how something looks on a page, I feel like is very similar to experimental film. And so I feel like oftentimes I don't like watching films to get inspiration because I feel like if I do that, I'll just end up copying someone or like copying something from someone. So oftentimes I go to poetry um, when I'm looking for inspiration. Um, And Anne Carson has always been that in how she has sort of changed the way I look at poetry or what poetry can be. I mean, she just wrote this uh, new book it's uh, she basically just wrote with collaboration of this artist, the Trojan uh, woman, and um, kind of this collaboration of and sort of mixed form of graphic novel and poetry, and really pushing the boundaries of what a poem can be. And I think about that all the time. You know, take so much inspiration from poets and authors like Anne Carson. Big fan. Yeah, I think it's important to find inspiration in more than one place. So. It's great. It's great. Going back a little bit to activism and filmmaking as an activist tool. So we obviously discussed genital reveal party and pride trademark. And I wanted to ask you how activist filmmaking is significant to you, but also if you would identify your other films. So like um, Heracles and Torn Silk and also Constantine as activist films, or if you would separate that because we are aware that some people view all they make as an activist move and some other people are like no this is my stuff i remember reading this question and thinking do i consider myself an activist filmmaker um i because i really never thought of myself as such and not that my film doesn't align itself with um radical movements or you know uh other types of, you know, queer theory, intersectional theory. But I guess when I read this, I thought, well, I guess the act of making is radical. The act of making um, work about one's self, one's identity, one's body is an act of activism. And so in that way, I guess I would consider all my works activist work, though Films like Pride and General Reveal Party, I would say, are reactionary films. And 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 that's the difference, I would say, between work like Heracles and Torn Silk and Constantine versus Pride and General Reveal Party, is those films are reactionary. Like, we are all in the U.S. and everywhere, but especially in the U.S., I feel like oftentimes we're on the battleground of, like, you know, constantly in flux of our rights um, being taken away. So a lot of these come from a place of like anger. <laughs> and I think that's the difference is where my other films come from a place of self-discovery, love, freedom, liberating myself. These come from a sense of like anger and reaction and a hope for liberation and often responding to something very temporally now right? General Reveal Party was reactionary to these, like, this sort of phenomena, which never really existed before. It's actually quite a new thing in the US. I don't know if it, 
happens in Scotland. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I hope it does not. <laughs> um, so it might be very U.S. centric. Sort of the anger and you know the uh, this gender essentialism that is harming so many children um, that just made me so angry. But then I also kind of wanted to make the film a little funny because it was a ridiculous spectacle. So it sort of plays on these ideas of sort of dark and humorous, but um, also. I find that when I pull the thread of one oppressive system, I, I find the interconnected threads between a lot, which is why when I, you know, I found this article about this Arizona fire that spread over miles, you know, you know, these sort of connection between climate disaster and gender essentialism, connection between uh, gender essentialism and uh, violence and gun violence um, and the military industrial complex. And uh, you keep pulling the thread. And, and, and I think that is also something as we organize, we certainly need to start to think about. Oppressive systems affect identities and intersecting identities differently on purpose because it doesn't allow us to organize collectively, right? So everyone's fighting different fights. Um, but in fact, if we all pull the threads, they're pretty similar. We're all fighting kind of smaller battles when there should be larger organizing um, happening around sort of late stage capitalism and climate disaster, which is connected to mass incarceration, the military industrial complex, um, transphobia, um, racism. Um, yeah. <sighs> Sometimes it is a little bit hammer on the nail, but I, I, I try not to, I try to allow even my reactionary films to have a lot of space for reflection and not necessarily telling people, because I understand in a world where we're all need to be responding to things that are, um, you know, violating our, you know, our livelihoods and existences. There isn't a lot of nuance to activist um, response, right? There, and there can't be because it's about responding to something right now. And that's why I don't always see my work as activism because activism is sometimes I feel super responsive to a, a thing that needs to be fixed right now. Where I feel like mine is trying to see a an interconnectedness to be thought about, um, and not necessarily like stop gender reveal parties, right? That's like not the point of the film. I know. That's my film is not going to stop that at all. It's more thinking, looking at the, the the interconnectedness between these forms of oppression that are connected to gender essentialism, and not necessarily about organizing around like uh, a book ban that contain that's from a transgender author. Right? They're sort of different, and I feel like activism is sort of an, a call for now where my films feel reactionary, but are more of a, a call to think about the interconnectedness of uh, oppress oppressive systems. Yeah, and I guess you use the reaction within your mediums that you're working with. And um, Genital Reveal Party is a 3D film, which is amazing. You've talked about it before. Um, and you have also had moving image projects displayed in museum spaces. What is like? What is it like to produce work that doesn't fit within the narrow or confines of mainstream filmmaking? I know you don't 
follow mainstream filmmaking anyways? I do and I don't. So it's I, it's funny because I, I do follow mainstream filmmaking. I find it as a great source of love and entertainment. You know, there's a little bit of snobbery with like high church experimental filmmakers, which I try to like, I try to like break that myth. Experimental or avant-garde is very like, you know, salon style exclusive, like the New York experimental filmmakers surrounding, um, you know, anthologies are very much like a boys club, very like exclusive. And, you know, that kind of had bled in. So like even my mentors, you know, were sort of still breaking out of that as like, this needs to be a tool for everybody, right? Or like a mode of making for everyone. And when I, and when my students asked like, oh, well, what's your favorite film? I was like, well, technically my favorite film is Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, which is not an experimental film. It's a, so I, I do love narrative work. I just, I found no joy in making narrative work because of the the needing of resources and specifically in the U.S. there is little to zero public arts funding unless you come from means it's hard to make something um with uh, nice cameras and all that good stuff good lenses um so i i got a bolex that has just lasted through my days um only need one camera and two lenses uh, for all my media making. <laughs> um, I have made pieces specifically for museums, though most of my films are meant to be watched start to end. But the films I have projected in museums, I, I like to choose ones that are visually complex enough that it can be walked into and walked out of. Um, I think Heracles and Torn Silk is a great example of that. I don't, someone could walk halfway through and still get something quite beautiful out of it. Brian, you know, once said that like great ambient music is as interesting as it is forgettable. <laughs> and I, and I, and I think that's, I think that's um, something that to be said about something so visually complex is like, it, it's it's like a lot to walk into, so you can either really get into it or you can kind of see it out the periphery and enjoy it and walk on in a museum. But most of my work is meant for the screen. Um, everyone to put their butts in a chair and watch it start to end. I, I want to go where people are. I want I want experimental film to be more accessible. And if more people see my work because it's in a museum, I think great. But the problem with experimental film screenings in the U.S. and museums in general is museums are expensive in the U.S. Uh, caveat that a lot of museums are free um, in other countries because they support arts and people seeing arts. When people want to do outdoor screenings, when people want to show it at, like, I just showed a film in, like, someone's barn in Seattle. It's, like, not... You know, it's not something for my CV or for like, you know, because it was in a film festival. It's just like, but when people want to do that, I love that. I love when people are like, let's watch this. Whatever gets it to the most amount of people, because I often feel experimental film can be very exclusive. It's like in a basement, in a university, 12 people show up and <laughs> they're all like high church academics and you know art historians or it's in a really nice museum 
but you have to pay $30 to get inside. I'm more interested in my work showing elsewhere, <laughs> if I'm being quite honest. Because <laughs> I don't find that as radical practice. If it's not accessible, it's not radical. So something I'm about to do is just, um, because everyone says don't do it, but I'm kind of over it. All my films before 2022, I'm just having three online. So by the time people hear this, uh, my most of my work will be free online because <laughs> I've got, I've got to I've got to sick of people not being able to access experimental film and queer uh, made work. I remember Fracto in Berlin. Um, Alchemy gets incredible audiences for experimental work. They really focus on community and like bringing community in, and is something the U.S. is just not good at. They want to be exclusive. They want only the coolest of cool to show up. It's kind of it's kind of choking out um, the interest in experimental film. Yeah, I had a great time at Alchemy. Like, it was great to see sold out screening after sold out screening with like eighty people in a room watching experimental film. You know, like it's yeah, it was stunning. I I I think I have to submit again because I love them so much. And when I showed, it was all online because of COVID. But I remember doing my sort of, it was me and four other, three other artists who were doing like an opening presentations of like our work, sort of reflecting. We were doing like artist presentations on a theme. And I remember looking at the Zoom and there was like, 200 people in the Zoom room listening to me talk about experimental film. And I was like, what is this? Like, this is incredible. I was like, I'm used to, and this is no shade at, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to market. You know, we, the U.S. is very narrative, commercial focused. There's not a lot of support or love for avant-garde or new ideas or new experiments in cinema. So it's hard to get an audience, um, but going to Alchemy, and then also you can kind of see how many people were viewing the live stream of the program I was in. It was like 170. I guess you get a lot more when you have an online program because anyone can show up um, around the world. But what you're saying, like sold out experimental screenings. Yeah. And it was just great to go to the Scottish borders and like see loads of artists together in a small space it's just stunning and the work that alchemy does within the community where they are at with like arts and residencies and yeah it's just like julia parks was one of the filmmakers that participated in the arts and residencies and she made four experimental films that she showed at the festival that i was at and it was just beautiful to see like how she connected the community with analog filmmaking. It's a community practice. And if it's not thought of such, um, it becomes completely inaccessible, right? And there's something happening, um, especially when it comes to uh, countries that support public arts. Um, and it allows arts to exist separately from the need of capital. So when you publicly fund arts, it allows people to experiment in unconventional ways and create quite incredible things and create support for those sort of experimentation and like form that 
doesn't always happen in places where you have to have capital or the PC make has to make capital. I'm always impressed to see what happens abroad. I I believe that experimental filmmaking should be accessible for both making it and for viewing it, um, which is why it's very exciting that Alchemy Film Festival is doing the work they do. I I'm quite excited about whenever they open the submissions again because I am hoping to submit as well and I'm yeah very very excited. Um, we were hoping to talk a little bit about your experimental documentary now, which is The Backside of God. You told us that you made it using archival footage, digital glitch, chemical abstraction and direct animation. And you explore your relationships with family, religion and queerness and how they interact and how they're like interlinked in a way. So what was it like going through family archival footage and repurposing it for experimental documentary making? So it's like the first, I guess, closest thing to a conventional documentary I've ever made. Um, so when I was making it, I it's so funny, I, I would show it, I was still in grad school. So this is my graduate thesis film. And it, it showed at Alchemy. Um, so that was one of its, I think that was its first or second screening or something. I remember I was with a bunch of conventional filmmakers who were very interested in like um, narrative arcs, which still exists within documentaries, like ideas of um, sort of uh, climactic moments um, happening and very structured. So I was getting a bunch of feedback being like, okay, well, you should reveal this then. You should create a structure like this then. And I was like, and I kind of pushed back on that. <laughs> I was, and, and also I was told by a thesis advisor that it needs to be less than 12 minutes or no one's going to program it, which is something, I don't know if that's, if that's the word over on your side of the ocean, but in the US, they're like, if you don't have a short under 10 minutes, no one's going to program it because they want to program more. So my film's like 27 minutes. It's like not a short, but like not a feature. John John Vito, oh my gosh, who's that person I told you back earlier in my undergraduate degree, gave me film stock, gave this poor little queer kid with no money, like all these resources, <laughs> looked at me dead in the eye and said, it needs to be as long as it needs to be. <laughs> and I remember, and I say that to my students now, um, because I'm sick of people telling people how long films need to be, or like what, what will get it the most programming, or a film needs to be as long as it needs to be. I wanted to sort of replicate the feeling of trudging through this archival material. And there's moments of just like darkness, like you kind of see some animation, some direct animation, um, but mostly in darkness. And I remember listening to these audio tapes late at night, recording them, these sort of sermons um, that I had all on cassette tapes that I was digitizing and I would be listening to them in the darkness. And going through that archival footage was very hard. It was reliving a lot of trauma that I experienced and it was sort of perpetrated against me as a young uh, uh, queer person. And 
the feelings of fear, insecurity, and, you know, all these sort of, it was sort of confronting a past that I had left behind. Um, and oftentimes, as queer people, we have to reject family and come up with new family. And that family isn't just blood, right? Family exists in many, many different types of formats. That isn't just the people who um, helped in procreation and, and created you. It, it exists in many other ways. But I was, I was really interested in reconfronting that like and i went to meet um with my uncle um who had passed away at that moment um and who had agreed to sort of film with me and i and he died when i arrived so i was kind of left with nothing so like i had no i i was supposed to i wanted to record a bunch of audio with him and you know like i said before i just collect materials and then make meaning out of them later and so i was planning on just doing a bunch of audio recording and seeing what we can make about it together and i was really interested in this idea of queer temporality and i had been reading a lot of theories about that about how time changes how time exists differently out of like heterofamilial timelines obviously now with access to um, reproductive rights for queer people you know you know our timelines exist more similarly than they did in the past but you know when you don't have access to these sort of benchmarks for what we consider to be a happy and healthy life or the fact that you may not want those things at all um, the way you experience time changes and I was interested in looking at his queerness in rejection of it as a temporal moment of like uh, his upbringing and really thinking about how our temporal existence are so different. Um, and in fact, exploring like, is he still queer even in rejection of his queerness? Like would I, cause I also was raised in a very extremely religious household could I have easily taken a path just like that for the ease of, of living rejected it, even though it would have internally tormented me as it did him. Um, and I was interested in exploring those ideas um, that are kind of hard to think about because we often for safety reject, like, like, you know, I, I, I've had to put a lot of my family, you know, out of my world for safety and uh, to come back to that, to look at the nuances of some of that, especially for someone who said had a lot of battling with their sexuality, reckoning with the idea that um, this sort of queer phobia was linked to trauma and pain and like do I still love him it was really exploring these nuances that I feel like I wasn't able to explore before and and I'm not sure still do I love him I did when I was a child I didn't later in life but do I now are there can I love parts of him can I sympathize with someone like that 
who caused so much harm, knowing that a lot of the pain they caused was because of pain they felt inside. I'm not sure. And I still don't know. And that's sort of the reason the archival was so important, because I really needed to look at the breadth of the recorded media about him and to see, sort of find reasons, answers, which there are none. They're never answers, but to sort of explore those sort of uh, two different queer timelines, mine and his, right? It's just, it's it's hitting very hard because being aware of of like how people who have hurt you have done the hurt because they've been hurt as well is very complicated because like you sit with the ideas of I have been hurt but I care about this person deeply and I can see that they're also hurt and that the actions they perpetuate are coming from a space and a mindset of like hurt as well it's very complicated so it's it's taking it in thinking about it (laughs) yeah and it's something that i felt like i've dealt with as a teacher um as well is um oftentimes we and even you know we're taught when a student causes harm like emotional harm is to sort of take them out like separate or extract or reject right like to get them out of the classroom and you find that those people who cause harm are often the people whose the most harm has been perpetuated onto them and in living with that idea and like separating and, and and taking away these sort of punitive systems like interpersonally and within like education that sort of that don't actually deal with pain and trauma um, just kind of separate it um, and reject it. And, you know, if someone is causing harm, it's not about um, reconciling with it. It's about um, separating it, um, which is a form of protection, too. Um, but we find out that it doesn't really solve a lot. And I found that that has been the case many times over with me dealing with my family is I've separated it for the current moment of safety but that pain still exists and I have not really reconciled it. And I've not really dealt with what sort of traumas they're going through. And it doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily make it what they did. Okay. It doesn't make it forgivable. It just makes the nuance of it more. It makes it more complicated to, to not be able to see the nuance of these things. You know, we, we live, we live in a place, we live in a world where, you know, we often, we often lack to see nuance in these things, which is fine. It's for, and I want to keep saying that it's for protection. Sometimes you have to do that, right? Sometimes you just have to protect yourself. Um, But sometimes you have to kind of revisit um, the pain to see that nuance um, to find some sort of understanding in it. And I think that's what I was trying to do with this film. Yeah. The film was very impactful for me, I found. And all of your films are 
Amazing. I really like the one that spoke the most to me was Heracles and Torn Silk. I'm not sure why, but I watched it like five times in a row. Um, and yeah, I'm just like really happy that we got to watch all of the films and talk to you just now. Um, and I just wanted to ask a question about accessing funds. I know the US is quite bad with like I, I mean I'm not sure I'm not from there but like but like especially accessing funds to create experimental projects and I know you've mentioned that you've done some arts and residencies as well like how what was the process of like finding the arts and residencies and then going through them and yeah and accessing other types of funding I usually look at a bunch of resources online this week in experimentals like uh, it's actually a friend created it, but I use it as a resource that posts funding opportunities both nationally in the U.S. and internationally and residencies. Um, word of mouth um, between people who've done the residencies. Often I have friends who are like, I just did this, like you should do it. And often residencies don't give a lot of funding, but they give space, which is really important. Like right now, um, I have space. Uh, mentorship colleagues, a bunch of um, artists here who we're all sort of interacting with and showing each other's work. But when it comes to funding, it's about resource sharing in the U.S. And it's really about community. So oftentimes when I have extras, I hoard. Any sort of resources that are in abundance, I hoard. And then I redistribute. And that's kind of a something that happens within experimental film world like someone will give you a camera they're like oh i have this extra camera i have this extra lens here you go i have this extra film i have friends who are professors who get a bunch of funding from their institutions and then they redistribute it so it's kind of like this interconnected system of redistribution of resources and it's kind of intense because I don't really get a lot of funding. I, I, I kind of teach um, as a way to fund my practice and also get support for my work. And we'll see that a lot in the US. A lot of artists are institutionalized and I make that sort of as a double, kind of a pun as both uh, kind of like are within an institution, but also within this sort of like, um, like loony bin of like... <laughs> And, you know, a lot of artists need to uh, connect themselves with universities to get access to funding. And when that doesn't happen, you turn towards resource sharing. And then there's also a growing community around artist-run labs all over the U.S., like Mononoa Lari is great. Interbay Cinema Society in Seattle is great. Um, there are all these sort of local institutions that have resources and, and workshops and sometimes lab AGX in Boston. And we really have to rely on each other. There's not a lot of funding. Sometimes I'll get some small amount of funding that will last a little bit of time from like the state or the city, or I'll apply for a grant, um, but it's few and far between. So when it comes to funding, it's often about collective resource sharing amongst each other. We sort of have to really rely on each other in the U.S. Really have to 
be vulnerable and be like, I really need something, but I don't have the resources. And someone who does will sort of often offer it. That sounds a lot like the trans community and like GoFundMe's. You know, it's like very, yeah, just trans people giving each other money. And and trans healthcare. So that often is, is, is publicly funded and, you know, redistribution of like personal wealth. Um, where if someone has, like, if I have a little bit extra and I see things like that, I'll often donate because I'm like, okay, well, I'm giving a little now because I know there will be times when people give me. Um, and yeah, and the same thing, access to healthcare, access to research and artistic funding, it's like all interconnected. Like the same reason we have to do this, the same, you know, systems at play that cause us to not have healthcare also are the same that causes us to not have artistic resources. Um, <laughs> like the thread is linked, even though we kind of see them as two separate battles, right? Um, are there any other creative practices that you're interested in? Yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot of um, print work. So although I do moving image work, I've been really interested in also doing a lot of print work um, using those same experimental techniques. Um, this isn't done, but I'm, um, and I'm, I'm doing a ton of different layers and different tonings of like sienna type like images. And so right now it's just plant material, but I'm, um, I'm doing a bunch of different layering and then I'm going to do layering of like um, negatives of bodies intermixed with, um, plant materials. So I'm very interested in print work. I realize that a lot of my work incorporates a form of performance. Um, and I would love to get more into doing performance work um, if I ever had the confidence to do so. And then poetry. I, I, I always come back to poetry. I, I love writing it. I'm not a great poet, but I find that reading and writing poetry often help me work through the actual practice I want to do on in the moving image space. We're getting to the, not quite close to the end, but um, what advice would you give to trans creators that are just starting out? Be vulnerable. Lean on others. Find people who are interested in community. Don't be afraid to ask for help find mentorship that's a big one and ask people i mean you don't have to directly be like will you be my mentor but um really relying on the established uh community that's already there who wants new people especially in the u.s where 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 this the experimental filmmaking community is a community of legacy I mean, when I think of my mentor and my mentor's mentor, and it's it goes down like this really amazing route of um, uh, makers, and the legacy needs to continue. Um, so people are looking to share resources, share knowledge, open the space up to you, though it may not seem so on the outside. So feel confident to insert yourself in those spaces. Um, be vulnerable. Um, share your work, submit your work, like stop thinking that you need, this goes to all students, but, or all early makers is stop thinking that you need the perfect piece to insert yourself into the art world. I used to think that for so long, I was like, oh, this piece isn't 
isn't perfect or what I thought was perfect. You deserve to take up space everywhere. <laughs> um, I had, I, it's so funny because I, I think actually after alchemy, I have like a couple of people just reach out about some of the processes that I use. And I'm so willing to share that because um, experimental filmmakers have been so generous to me about techniques and, and process and like how they create images that often if you even see something, reaching out to a maker and being like, hey, I'm really interested in that type of making and like that type of practice, oftentimes you will be given so much love. And if they don't give you love, leave them. They're, 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 not, they're not good people anyways. If they're not opening their arms to young or new makers, like they're not uh, practicing the community we want to continue throughout experimental filmmaking. I'll definitely message you about it <laughs> i i did study film in at uni but the production course got cancelled because of covid and we didn't really get well i didn't really get to make many films and i really want to get back into it because I, I basically went into film curation and that's kind of the career that i'm in but i want to kind of go back to making things and yeah so that's a goal for my next year well, you're doing the work of keeping the legacy alive, which is, I mean, curation is an art form, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love curation. It's just that I want to make stuff as well. I was just going to ask, do you have any other, I know you mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the interview, but do you have any new projects on the horizon that you're working on? I am, I am doing a bunch of work with um, eco-processing, so using plant matter to create black and white developers. That's what I'm sort of working on at this residency, is creating non-toxic black and white developers, um, working with a lot of plant materials integrated with um, images of queer bodies, looking at ideas of queer ecology and how we've categorized natural and unnatural things in the world and how we often relate that to uh, science in quotation, you know, the same type of science that also is linked to like eugenics, um, gender essentialism, like all these sort of oppressive forms. Because, you know, in a world where, you know, we're trying to protect each other during COVID, we're often saying believe in science because we want to protect our public health. But then also there's this other science, science that is used as an oppressive form a science that is meant to try to prove natural and unnatural things that actually don't exist within that sort of binary. So I often say when people are like, believe science, I'm like, who's science? Yes, COVID is real. Yes, we should get vaccinated. Do sex binaries exist? No, actually they don't. Um, and many people who study science understand that hormones and genitals are are in quite variation between each other they aren't just one or the other and that also doesn't exist in the natural world and which is why we're making me and my collaborator and good friend gabby Sumney are working on a film that's an ode to the ginkgo tree which um, often changes changes in sort of uh being a pollinator versus a uh, a fruit producer um, and often exists somewhere between this sort of even binary we often give to plants as a way of sort of looking at the natural world. Um, so I, I'm doing a lot of studying, collecting materials, printing things, creating different processes um, in hopes to create a couple films surrounding 
the idea of queer ecology. That is, yeah, very exciting. Gonna keep an eye out to see what you make and what you put out in the world. But for now, we're gonna wrap up by asking you if you have any recommendations for a lovely audience. So that could be queer, it could be not queer, and it could be films, books, podcasts, anything you fancy sharing with the listeners. One of my favorite uh, musicians, um, Mal Bloom, M-A-L-B-L-U-M, is an incredible trans um, musician, um, vocalist, all around human. I love uh, his work. Such a great, I love listening to it. It's great to listen to while you're driving. It's very, it's it's quite beautiful. In terms of movies I recently see, one of my favorite uh, trans experimental filmmakers, or it's hard, I, I, I think he, it's, there's often discussion about whether we should call ourselves experimental or like nonlinear. There's often moves of like changing the name. Very radical filmmaker Malik Amalia um, recently just made this film called Living Lessons in the Museum of Order. Um, which is looking at um, the interconnected link between two forms of oppression that happen in San Francisco. One is the sort of uh, commercial, uh, voyeuristic um, practice of going to Alcatraz and enjoying like the remnants of this very oppressive system, and then also SeaWorld um, and looking at the interconnectedness of how we incarcerate find enjoyment in incarceration of humans and then also animals. And so oh, this incredible film, I, I, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> I've seen it so many times. And I feel like if Malik listens to this, uh, he'll laugh uh, at me. <laughs> but <laughs> We know each other. <laughs> but um, I, I was just so, it, it, it moved me so much because it's these things that I try to pull out of my work, this sort of inner, this find this very small thread between these like forms of oppression that exist. Poetry I've been reading. I've been reading some Anne Carson, this um, new, this book, um, it's, it's H of H. It, it's an incredible um, book of poetry and art. Um, and it sort of is looking at both, you know, the Greek tragedy of Heracles, and specifically looking at uh, Euripides' um, sort of tragedy of Heracles um, in this very beautiful retelling of both art and poetry. Um, and I just started, and it's quite incredible. And so, yeah, and it's also interesting revisitation of, you know, Anne Carson's autobiography of Red, um, which deals with a different story of Heracles, but because um, it also integrates a bunch of really beautiful art in it too. So really, again, pushing the form of what poetry can be and the sort of different things poetry can sort of breathe into it, like a graphic novel or watercolor. That is very exciting. I Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us today and for having these big discussions with us. It's been very, very lovely to get to know you and your practice. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And I still want to open that up that if anyone wanted to reach out to me, they can. Um, as we think about the accessibility and legacy of experimental film, my arms are as wide open as I can allow them. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. I loved this conversation with Hogan. We just want to thank them so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Make sure to follow Hogan on social media to check out their work. Their links are on the episode description and you can find more via our Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode and stay tuned for a following episode next month. <laughs>